With great power comes great responsibility. Compromise where you can. Where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is something right. Even if the whole world is telling you to move. It is your duty to plant yourself like a tree. Look them in the eye and say no. You move. Never step onto the battlefield of ideas unprepared. Before you enter the fray, you need a plan. And there's no better place to get one than right here on Tactics with host Caleb Colquitt. The Situation Room goes live now on News Radio 1440. And good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thanks, everybody, and welcome to the program this evening. It is a pleasure to be with you, as always. And we always try to make sure that local news takes first priority. So we're going to get into some Alabama local news, especially about Governor Kay Ivey here in just a second. Do want to remind everybody to go ahead and like and subscribe if you're watching on Facebook, Twitter, Twitch, Periscope. We're on basically everywhere at this point. So if you're not watching the show, that's really a you problem. So be sure to uh, like and subscribe. And it's been like the worst week ever. So that's why I'm, I'm getting started so late this evening. And I'm sorry about that. So we're, the show's probably going to run a little, uh, a little, little less than it normally does. We're only going to cover a few stories. But we still are going to be covering the most important stories to you this evening. And first up, we have one where Governor Kay Ivey actually has ended the federal employment benefits. Well, she didn't technically end it yet. She announced that it is going to end and it's going to end soon. So uh, the way that this works is the state of Alabama actually has the ability to either opt in or opt out of federal unemployment benefits that were put in place specifically to address the concerns that were going on with the coronavirus and the scare that happened. And these have been going on for a while. They've uh, been adjusted as time goes on to either go up or go down, but they, they've remained fairly similar throughout this whole thing. But essentially what this would get rid of is it ends the $300 a week extra payments on top of the unemployment that people were already getting to help support them with the coronavirus. And, and keep in mind that they were increasing the payments. They were increasing that $300 a week in unemployment on top of the fact we had more unemployed people. And so it's sort of a double whammy is that you're getting an extra 300 bucks a week, not a month, a week, on top of the unemployment you were already drawing. And part of the reason that this was such a big deal is because this meant that there were an awful lot of people that were making more money unemployed than they were back when they were employed. And so because of that, that really made a big difference here. It also ends the special consideration for gig workers. So that was another thing that was written into the bill that if you are a gig worker, if you're somebody that doesn't necessarily have a, a regular scheduled job, but if you're, say, a musician or an entertainer or somebody else that works gigs. And by the way, on radio, I've actually been a gig worker before. There were times where I was basically contracted as a case-by-case -case talent as opposed to being someone that was on permanent contract or on the payroll permanently for a particular company. That was the way that my employment was structured back when I was at Auburn. And so that this is something that I actually have a little experience with, but that special consideration that would have included gig workers in unemployment when it normally wouldn't have, uh, they actually brought them in and included them on unemployment, even though a company had not actually fired them. 
Now, to a degree, this was understandable when the shutdown was going on because kind of hard to make a living as a musician that plays in bars when all the bars have been mandated to be closed. Like, as much as I'm against the federal program and, and I don't believe that the Fed should have been handling this, at least there was some ro logic and rationale underneath that taking place. But now that everything's open, there's really no need for that to be still in place because the places that would normally host gig workers, well, those places are open now. And so there's really no reason to continue consideration for gig workers under the conditions that we're currently under. It also ends the benefit exp extension. So uh, the way that that worked is when you're on unemployment, you're not only getting paid by the government to provide for you while you're unemployed, you're also getting extra on top of that for your benefits in the form of things like dental and eye care. I'm not sure exactly how all this works, but any of the extra considerations, the extension of those benefits for people that were unemployed by the federal government, those will be ending uh, now that Governor Ivey has announced that. And it also ends the additional $100 on top of the $300 that was already on top of the original unemployment benefits for people with what are called mixed earnings. And so those are people that uh, their unemployment is factored in basically uh, when they, they may not necessarily have one primary income. And so uh, there, there's a number of different things that it did. Those are just the main things that this particular unemployment benefits that Gov Governor Ivey decided we didn't need any more would do. And so uh, Kay Ivey did release a statement with this, and I wanted to just go ahead and, and read that, read a portion of the memo that she sent out via the Alabama governor's website. She says, and I will not attempt to do a KIV impersonation. I just can't do it. I can't do that voice. As Alabama's economy continues to its recovery, we are hearing from more and more business owners and employers that it is increasingly difficult to find workers available to, uh, to fill available jobs. Even though job openings are abundant, said Governor KIV, among other factors, increased unemployment assistance, which was meant to be a short-term relief program during emergency-related shutdowns, is now contributing to labor shortages that is compromising the continuation of our economic recovery. And so Governor Ivey absolutely hits the nail on the head there, and she's saying, look, we're, we're listening to our business owners, we're listening to our employers, and they're saying, we can't hire anyone because every time we try to, nobody shows up for an interview. Nobody's turning in applications. Nobody's actually looking for jobs. And this is a problem that we saw on a much smaller scale. Now, obviously, because of the coronavirus, it exploded out of control. And it was kind of uncontro uncontrollable back when the example that I'm about to give from the Obama administration, but not to this level. I mean, th this is that on steroids. The job crisis we had in the wake of the 2017 crash and was overseen largely by Obama was partly perpetuated by a policy that allowed people to extend unemployment benefits up to two years. Now, granted, two years is a definite ending, whereas these were apparently just going to continue in perpetuity. There was no limit on when these things were supposed to end. But President Obama put into place a policy that said, yeah, you can basically just live for two years off the government teat. Don't have to show that you're actually looking for work. Don't have to actually have a job. You can just keep going for two years and, and live off the taxpayer without having to do anything yourself. And the problem with that is this particular unemployment benefit that, that they have added on to that is even more lucrative. 
it's even easier to live a comfortable life on the amount of money that they were sending to people on this one, and they were making more money than even decent-paying jobs. Now, granted, the radio industry, despite popular opinion, is not necessarily the industry that you go to to make a ton of money. I know that looking at me, you wouldn't necessarily think that. Uh, but no, the, the radio industry does not pay particularly well, but it's still a decent-paying job. And I remember my program director, Joe Hunk. I mean, you, you guys probably know him. He's been on the show a number of times. Joe told me that he was actually making more money on unemployment when he was laid off from Cumulus than he was when he was at Cumulus. And like I said, that's not exactly a uh, the CEO of Google or anything, but it's still a decent paying job. And he was a management position. And he said, still, they were paying better on unemployment than he was when he was actually at Cumulus and, and doing a job. And, you know, Joe didn't take advantage of that because that's not the kind of person that he is. But there are an awful lot of people that are looking at that situation and going, let's see, you're telling me that I could sit at home on my butt, do absolutely nothing, and make the same or even maybe a little bit more? than I was making when I was waking up at 6 a.m. every morning and working eight hours a day, um, yeah, I'll take the deal where I don't have to leave my house. And, you know, th that may have made some sense back when this thing was starting and there were government-mandated shutdowns. Now, I was against the government-mandated shutdowns from the beginning. But if you are going to shut this thing down as a government, there is some rationale to saying, but we have to take care of the people that got harmed by the government forcing everybody to shut down. I don't think the government should be doing that anyway, but if they do, and that's the reality that we live in, folks, if they do, I understand why there were people that were saying, we have to take care of the people that got hurt by the government's decision. The government should be recompensing people that were harmed by the government's action. But you don't do it to the point to where they're completely comfortable for months and months, and in this case, we're approaching years on end, without actually having to go out and work, especially since the shutdowns ended a really, really long time ago, guys. Now, Alabama ended a little earlier than some other states. We didn't end super early. But in all 50 states, the shutdowns have more or less ended. Even in, in bright blue states like California and New York, the shutdowns have more or less ended and everybody's back to work. And yet these unemployment benefits continue to, conti to go on in perpetuity. But KIV does at least deserve credit for that. And, and we'll just look at one other portion of this statement here. You'll see in the, the bottom part, and, and Governor Ivey does absolutely deserve some credit for this. Alabama has an unemployment rate of 3.8%, the lowest in the Southeast, and significantly lower than the national unemployment rate. Our Department of Labor is reporting that there are some available jobs now, in, uh, there are available jobs now than prior to the pandemic. Jobs are out there, continued KIV. We have announced the end date of our state of emergency. There are no industry shutdowns and daycares are operating with no restrictions. Vaccinations are available for, for all adults. Alabama is giving the federal government our 30-day notice that it is time to get back to work. And so there's Governor Ivey listing out a, a laundry list of reasons why this thing does need to end. And she's right. And I give her credit for that. If you were to read just that... It, Take Governor Ivey's name off of it. If you were reading that in a vacuum, that sounds Ron DeSantis-esque. 
that sounds like somebody that is a dyed-in-the-wool conservative that understands that big government is a, is a bad idea and that if you make people dependent upon government, they're going to depend upon government rather than contribute to society. I mean, that is Adam Smith levels of capitalism. And so I absolutely agree with it. I support it. And Governor Ivey hit the nail right on the head. You cannot continue to make people comfortable because I've noticed this just in my own personal dealings. I went to Auburn not too long ago. And remember that Auburn is a place with kind of a lot of young people. There, there's lots and lots and lots and lots of young people there. Lots of unskilled labor. And you know what I noticed? I went to Mama G's after an Auburn baseball game to try to get some food. And they were closed because they didn't have enough staff. And then I went to Wendy's. And remember, it was after a baseball game. So it was about 10 o'clock at night. I went to a Wendy's and drove around the drive-thru and they said, I'm sorry, remember, this is a Wendy's, which is supposed to be open late. We had to close early because we don't have enough staff. And then I drove to the Sonic, which did have enough staff to operate, but there was a line wrapped around the building at like 1030 at night. Now, it's a college town, so that's a little more common in Auburn than it is in your average town. But it was because basically everywhere else was closed because they didn't have enough staff. And when I finally did get up to the window, I kid you not, about 30 minutes after I pulled into Sonic, took me 30 minutes to get a meal at Sonic, and that Sonic is usually pretty quick, I saw the reason why it was taking them so long, because there were three people running the whole place. And that is not common that late at night for a Sonic in a college town. And that's just one example. Now, I've seen this all over the capital city. I've seen it in, in several of the suburbs outside Millbrook. I, I've seen it as, as far north as Chelsea, which I was in recently. There have been tons of, of vacancies. There have been tons of people that just, you're not seeing them working. They're not volunteering to go out and find a job. It's gotten so bad in Florida. I know this doesn't affect, this isn't in Alabama, but it's actually gotten so bad in Florida that there are McDonald's in Florida that are paying people $50 just to show up for an interview, not take the job, not do any work, literally just walk in the door and interview with the manager. Now, I do have a, a deep sense of affection and compassion for people that lost their jobs because of the pandemic. Keep in mind, I'm one of them. But at the same time, I'm, I'm looking at this situation. I mean, I still have one of my jobs, but I lost the other one. I'm looking at this situation and just <laughs> shaking my head thinking, we can't just make people comfortable to where they can live off of the government teat as long as they want to. Ben Franklin was one of the most compassionate founders that we had. This is a guy who literally gave up his patent for the potbelly stove saying, if it brings other people warmth, then that's fine. It didn't make a penny off of it. Went through all the trouble of inventing it and testing it and everything else and, and didn't want to make any money off of it because he figured it would help people. And that's the kind of person that, that Ben Franklin was. And that is the man who also said, sometimes the most compassionate thing we can do for the poor is to make them uncomfortable in their poverty. I'm not saying you don't give to the poor or take care of the poor or, or care for those who cannot provide for themselves because that's a Christian virtue. But you should allow the poor to contemplate those things and if they are able body and refuse to work 
you want them to have that spirit of entrepreneurship and, and be able to step up and pick themselves up by their bootstraps and figure out a way to provide for themselves. That's a good thing. And that's also something that the Bible esteems. If a man shall not work, neither shall he eat. That's in the Thessalonian letters. And so Governor Ivy does seem to, to really understand this and drive it home. And I want to give her full credit for that. However, and I know you kind of felt that there was going to be a however coming to this. Remember that KIV is not starting a good policy, but rather ending a bad one. And so I want to give her credit for this, and, and I agreed with literally everything in her statement. My argument is just, it's coming a little late. Because this should have been the sentiment that we had, and, and we should have gotten people back to work a long, long time ago. Especially when we realized that the risk of this thing was significantly less for young people than the seasonal flu. Now, older people, people with comorbidities, yeah, by all means, quarantine them, keep them safe, make sure that they're the first people to get the vaccine. I advocated for all of that when it was happening. And I was never the guy that said, if you're 78 and diabetic, that you need to go around kissing random strangers because you don't need to worry about the virus. No, that's a really dumb thing to do. But considering that for anybody under the age of 50, you're actually more likely to die from the seasonal flu than you are from the coronavirus, it didn't really make a lot of sense to shut down all of society and, and make everybody wear a face diaper for a year, considering that is the case. And so I agree with KIV's rationale. I think she's actually doing the right thing, but she's doing the right thing months and months and months after she should have. And so she gets credit for doing it, better late than never. But I do want to point out that she's not even actually ending it now. She's ending it 40 days after commissioning this order, which she gave on Monday. So in 40 days, this is when this thing is going to expire. And maybe the rebuttal for the, from the KIV supporters are going to be, yeah, Caleb, but what you don't want to do is you don't want all the people that are on unemployment and relying on it to have to go out and get a job right after they find out it's ending. Okay, maybe that's a fair point. I don't think that that's a, a wildly irrational reason for saying this, but the thing is, if that is the case, and, and that might actually be part of KIV's consideration, then this announcement should have been made 30 days ago. Really, it should have been made a lot longer than that ago. But if that were the case, and then she needed to make this announcement a month ago so that they would have time to do that and, and be ready to go back to work now. And keep in mind that every person in the state of Alabama, every adult anyway, has been eligible to get the vaccine for free for a long time now. I mean, it's we've had the vulnerable in Alabama getting it since the beginning of the year, but we've had the vaccine actually available to all adults that wanted it for well over a month. So why didn't we announce it back then to prepare everybody, hey, work's going to start, and if you want to go back and you're scared of it, go ahead and get the vaccine. You know, whether or not you support the vaccine or not, they've had the option of getting it. And so this is something that should have been done a long time ago. Now, granted, Governor Ivey's 178 years old, and so she moves a little slower, but we got to move a little quicker than this. Because the ending of this, which is going to be on June 19th, comes 40 days after her announcement, and... I added it up 394 days after our shutdown ended. Because remember that our shutdown ended back in May of last year. Or sorry, March of last year. And so 
if the shutdown was that long ago and businesses, every business was allowed to open, why is it just now that we're ending the federal unemployment benefits? Now, again, I want to give Governor Kay Ivey for doing the right thing, even if it took her a long time to do it. But why didn't she give them a 40-day warning on the day we shut down, on the day we opened back up? Because she's over a year late at this point. And I think it is just another example of government moving far too slowly. Now, as I've said many times before, I was against the government shutdowns entirely. And so there should have been no relief because there should have been no shutdown. But if we were going to do that, then those unemployment benefits needed to start drying up about 40 days after the shutdown. And we didn't do that. And if we had, we would be in a lot better position. Now to Kay Ivey's credit, and I don't think that this was all her, I don't even think that this was mostly her, but the state of Alabama did a lot better when it came to shutdowns than the vast majority of states. In fact, our unemployment is one of the lowest uh, differences before and after the pandemic. In other words, there was less of a change before the COVID hit and then after the shutdowns for Alabama than the vast majority of states. I believe we were like fifth or sixth in the entire country. And so we did a pretty good job of keeping our unemployment rates down for the most part. But that still doesn't change the fact that it would have been a, a lot better if we had started opening back up and, and getting rid of these unemployment benefits a year ago. But here's the thing that people on the left that are upset about this need to understand. Anytime you incentivize any behavior, regardless of what it is, more people are going to do it. Every single time. You give people a thing that they like for doing a certain thing, they're going to do that thing more often. That's true because it's universally true across all of human nature. We are paying people to not work. What effect do you think that is going to have? Obviously, to any thinking person, they would say, well, that means less people are going to be working. Yes, correct. You win the prize. That is true. You cannot incentivize people to continue to work and not expect them to take advantage of it. And I don't mean take advantage of in the sense that they use it for a few days until they find another job. Just even a well-intended, hardworking person is going to be less incentivized just because this is how human nature works. This is how the human brain operates. Even if it is somebody that, that instinctively knows they should get back to work quickly, they're going to have less motivation to do so if they are comfortable and if they're having things provided for them in their unemployment. I say this as somebody, it would be true even of me. If I were just receiving money and didn't have to worry about money, uh, maybe I'll just play video games and look for a job tomorrow. I mean, that's how human nature is. Or maybe I don't even articulate it that way in my mind, but that's what my behavior winds up being. Or, or maybe I'm just not as urgent about getting a job. And this is the way that human nature works. And, and the, the truth is a market, a free market, accounts for human nature. Governments seldom, if ever, do. And I know that a lot of liberals in the state, and I've heard this a lot over the past several days, not just in Alabama, but all over the country, but I've heard it from people in Alabama too. Their rebuttal is, well, the reason that there is such a shortage of workers is because companies aren't paying enough. So it, there's been goofy memes like this. I've seen tons and tons of them where there will be like, you know, Homer Simpson leaning down to Bart Simpson. He's like, nobody wants to work. And then he says, 
um, you know, paying $8 an hour and no benefits, like, no, people don't want to work for you. And so the argument there that the left is trying to get out of this is, well, we just need to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour and we just need to uh, force people to do free Medicare and, and benefits and all this stuff. Um, and once we do that, then people will get back to work. Um, no, the opposite has always been true. When you increase the cost of labor, less people are employed. Now, there may be less jobs that are unfilled, but that's because the companies will not be able to uh, afford to employ those people, not because they're having openings that just aren't being filled. They will just close those openings because they can't afford to pay a person $15 an hour to sweep the floors. That's what would happen. But you cannot increase regulation on a business and then have more people unemployed on the other side of that. That's simply not how that works. But nonetheless, let's just see if they're actually correct on this. Let's go now to uh, this graph. This is from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And you can see there, this is the unemployment rate seasonally adjusted from April 2009 to the present day. Now, I want you to go ahead and, and take a look at this. Consider this. It'll go here. There we go. All right. So January 2017, this is the day that Trump took office. Our unemployment rate was 4.7. The day that he left office, or sorry, no, no, I'm, I apologize. That's the wrong statistic. So the month before the coronavirus pandemic started, in other words, before we started doing all these lockdowns, the unemployment rate was at 3.5%. So we got it down almost a, over a full percentage point. And there's a, a rate of diminishing returns, which means the lower that unemployment rate is, the harder it is to go down. This was the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years. And then the pandemic hit and it shot right back up. You can see that massive spike there where it's over 14. And then April 2021, right now, where we're having all these labor shortages, 6.1%. So significantly higher than even the day that Trump took office. Now, the unemployment rate for people between the ages of 16 and 19 years old. So the youth unemployment. Again, the day that Trump took office, January 2017, that unemployment rate was 14.9. And then June 2018 was the lowest it had been since 1955 when it hit the low in Trump's administration, 11.2. Then right before the coronavirus hit, it had climbed back up just a little bit to 11.5, but it was pretty stable and it had been driven down quite a bit. And then of course the pandemic hit, it spiked just like every other unemployment rate spiked. Today, it is still at 12.3%. So granted, it is lower today than when Trump took office, but it is still higher than it was before the pandemic hit. Now, this one's just to own the libs, and because I, I know it drives them crazy when anybody brings this up, and I love it. This is the black unemployment rate. The day that Trump took office, January 2017, that stood at 7.4% unemployment. You see here in August 2019, 5.2%, the lowest ever. You want to talk about racial inequality? Do you remember that the unemployment rate when uh, that, that we just looked at was 3.5 overall. Well, think about that. 
5.2, not that far from that. And so there was much more equality when it came to unemployment when Trump was in office than any other president. And this is the lowest ever, not the lowest in a long time, the lowest unemployment rate for black Americans ever in the history of us keeping track of that. And that was one, a huge accomplishment by President Trump. And then February 2020, before the virus hit, it had climbed back up a little bit to 6%, but still significantly lower than when Trump took office, and so it was still down. And today it sits at 9.7%, so it's even higher than the day that Trump took office. The coronavirus and lockdown protocols destroyed minority employment. And here is the civilian labor participation rate. So this is how many people are, are working as opposed to how many people are filing for unemployment. Now, when Trump took office, again, January 2017, it sat at 62.8%. Right before the coronavirus, he had made it, he, you know, him and, and the, the economy, it wasn't just President Trump, but it was in part because of his, his deregulation and his decreasing of taxes, that kind of thing. 63.3%. And today, 61.7. So you can see it's it's lower than it's been in a very, very long time. Lower than it was even in the Obama administration. Significantly lower. And so you're seeing those statistics. And what it should tell you and what it should inform you, and this is the case, you remember we started out that graph. We started out with the question... Um, well, yeah, but it's because companies just aren't paying enough or they're not offering enough benefits. Well, they're offering the same benefits or the same pay roughly the, as they were in 2019. Why is it that we had all these people employed? You know what the minimum wage was? Same as it is now. You know what the federal requirements for healthcare was? Same as it is now. Nothing changed between now and 2019 on the requirements from government to provide to its employees. And yet, despite all of that, we had record low unemployment. I mean, the lowest that it's been in 50, 60 years, and in the case of black Americans, the lowest it has literally ever been in 2019, right before the pandemic hit. But now, those shortages are not caused by massive unemployment benefits that are supposed to continue as long as they want them to, we're supposed to believe that that's not a factor at all. Everything else is the same. That's the thing that changed. Now, some of those numbers are going to be attributed to the fact that businesses did close down voluntarily. People are, are less likely to go out to events and were during the shutdowns. Sure, that, that's part of it, and I'm not disregarding that. But I'm just saying you can't make the case, especially now that most states, even the bluer states, are starting to open up. You cannot make the case the reason we're having this massive unemployment a full year after the lockdowns is because companies just aren't paying as much. Because the requirements were the same then as they are now. So what changed? The only thing that makes any sense is the federal government decided to subsidize and incentivize not working. And as I said at the beginning of this thing, when you incentivize people to do a behavior, they're going to do that behavior more often. In this case, that being not working. That's really the only way that I can think of that you can explain why in February 2020, we had record low unemployment and record high labor participation rates. And now when you look at those same stats today, the opposite is true. It's the only thing that makes 
any sense here. And, and the thing is, this isn't even really about Trump versus Biden. I mean, I, I know that it's inevitable that when we're talking about it in political terms that we're going to be comparing the administration's approaches to those things. But this isn't really even about that, because remember, that massive spike happened under Trump. Now, it was a once-in-a-century pandemic, and I get that. But remember that Trump was the one pushing for all these policies that was advising people to go ahead and shut down and, and don't open and that kind of thing. It's the single biggest mistake of his presidency. I'm not even doing this and trying to make the case that if we had Trump back in office, the numbers would be significantly better. What I am saying is these policies, by the way, that Donald Trump did put in place and did not end before his tenure ran up at the White House. In other words, he didn't end it before leaving office, which he should have done and ended them long before then. And Congress played a role in that too. I'm not absolving them of, of any guilt that they played in this. But what I'm saying is I'm not even doing this to be like, oh, Trump's awesome and Biden sucks. I mean, that is accurate, but that's not what I'm trying to do here. The point that I'm trying to drive home is when it came to government mandated shutdowns, they're the thing that caused this, both under Trump and under Biden. And you can't make the case that, oh, all these unemployment and the job shortages, they're really the fault of these evil, big, greedy corporations that aren't paying their employees enough. Uh, no, actually, the companies are paying an awful lot. What's going on here is the government and the people that favor big government and want more people dependent on the government, they're trying to price labor out of the market. See, because now companies aren't just competing with other companies for employees, they're also having to compete against their own government that they pay taxes to, by the way, who is subsidizing the lifestyle of people that just don't want to go back to work. So they're not just competing with other businesses, they're having to compete with the taxpayer paying for those people to live a lifestyle where they don't have to do anything. And so that's another factor. This is, a, 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 this is an artificial way to increase the amount of pay. They're trying to do a back way to get to $15 an hour because they know that the businesses will pretty much have to offer to pay that to employ anybody just because of how difficult it is to convince people to actually go out and get a job as opposed to just sitting on their couch eating Cheetos all day. And make no mistake, that is what they are having to compete with right now. The example that I gave earlier about the, the McDonald's in Florida that's giving $50 just to show up for an interview that is costing them a lot of money and they're willing to pay it just to be able to keep the freaking doors open. And we're seeing that in mass across the entire country. And so Governor Ivey ought to be commended for getting rid of this stupid policy. All right, so we're going to go ahead and take a quick break and we'll be back in just a second on Tactics. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. That was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. And in keeping with the precedent that we have set for ourselves over the past couple of weeks until the vaccines are fully distributed, we're giving you a double dose of the Daily Dose of Stupid. And this first one I think is going to surprise an awful lot of people. Because it's somebody that I don't think you ever expected me to include in the Daily Dose of Stupid. Now, the second person you probably would guess. But the first topic of our Daily Dose of Stupid is Colonel Allen West. 
Yes, that Colonel Allen West, who is the representative of, of from Florida, or at least was for a few years, and then wound up becoming the chairman of the Republican Party in the state of Texas when he moved out to Texas. And so, great guy, incredible patriot, somebody that I have a ton of admiration for. But here at Tactics, we do not play favorites. That, that is, I mean, it's not one of the mottos of the show, but it really kind of should be, is that whether or not you have an R or D behind your name, if I think you do something dumb, I'm going to call you out on it. And I think Colonel Allen West did something very dumb here. So just to give you a little bit of backstory to understand what's going on here, Gary O'Connor, who is the chairman of the Lamar County Democrat Party, in the wake of Tim Scott's speech, you remember Tim Scott was the person who did the rebuttal to Joe Biden's not State of the Union, his speech to the joint session of Congress, but nobody ever says that because it takes too long and it's easier to say State of the Union. So basically, Joe Biden's State of the Union, which happened way too late. After that took place, Tim Scott came on and gave the rebuttal. It caused a lot of stir, a lot of controversy. I don't know why a black person saying America is not racist somehow creates controversy. I, I think it's weird that there's a entire political party that is rooting for the country to be racist and wants it to be racist and wants to believe the worst things in it. That seems bizarre to me. But nonetheless, that is what happened. And Gary O'Connor, the chairman of the Lamar County, Texas Democrat Party, didn't like this and didn't like what he said. And, and I assume, I've seen pictures of Gary O'Connor uh, kind of a white guy, you know, <laughs> not, not the, not the, not really an African-American, we would say. He's, he's about as white as me, which is impressive. The name kind of gives it away. You don't meet a lot of black O'Connors, but nonetheless, this guy, Gary O'Connor, he called Tim Scott an Oreo, which honestly I think is kind of funny. Now it's, it's, it's definitely a jerk move. It's racially insensitive. And I understand that the implication being, of course, he's, He's black on the outside and white on the inside, and I don't believe that about Tim Scott for a second. I don't think that anyone can be white on the inside. I think you're either black or white, and however you are, that's just how you are. Uh, to me, race is not the important thing. To the Democrats, it's everything. It's literally the only thing you're supposed to care about. But nonetheless, this is the way that Democrat Gary O'Connor thinks, and because of that, he saw Tim Scott, I guess, espousing conservative values as being white, which is hilarious because he's uber-white, and a Democrat, so I don't see how that's being white in the first place. But nonetheless, this was his take on it. There was a great deal of outrage, and, you know, I guess some of it was probably justified. He shouldn't have said that, for sure, on social media. And, and unfortunately, black conservatives like Colonel West and, and like Tim Scott are just used to this kind of junk because they do it all the time. They do it with Herman Cain. They did it with Ben Carson. They have done it ad nauseum with Clarence Thomas, the greatest jurist in American history. Well, him or John Jay, and frankly, I'd probably still take Clarence Thomas. But anyway, that aside, I won't get into that debate right now. Uh, he called him an Oreo, and so in response to this, Colonel Allen West, who this, of course, happened in the state of Texas, and, and Colonel West is the chairman of the state Republican Party there in Texas, he got the brilliant idea, this is dumb, he got the brilliant idea, let's mail them a bunch of Oreos, that'll show them. One of my most popular videos on this channel was when Emily Rodajkowski, I think was her name, she's this incredibly sexy model, and it's a good thing she's pretty because she's dumb, 
uh, her plan was to punish Republican senators in the state of Alabama by posting nude pictures of herself online. Yeah, R really stuck it to him there, Emily. Anyway, I think that this is a dumb plan, and it is a plan on the same level as the Emily Rodajkowski thing, primarily because it essentially does exactly the same thing. The reason that I say this is, put yourself into the mind of these Democrat representatives. If you showed up to work and there's just truckloads of free Oreos there waiting for you, would you feel A, bad about that, B, good about that, or C, like it's the best day at work ever? I would go with C. Oreos are freaking delicious, especially the double-stuffed kind. So if this happens to me, I don't feel like I did something wrong. I am dancing in the streets. And I can't dance because I am super white, and I assume that Gary O'Connor, being uber white himself, is also the same way. I don't know, maybe he does river dance. I, maybe so, I don't know. But regardless, if you show up and there's a truckload of Oreos for free at your workplace, that is not a bad thing, guys. And so as much as I love Colonel West, I'm sorry, Colonel, this was dumb. This is not a good strategy for punishing someone. Uh, I remember one time we showed up because Dairy Queen, the one over on Atlanta Highway, used to be one of our sponsors, and they had a bunch of free Oreo blizzards. Did I feel bad about that? No, I was absolutely freaking thrilled about that. When I walk into the door and there's a blizzard waiting for me there in my radio studio at 1440. And so <laughs> I just don't understand the strategy. This is why Colonel Allen West needs to hire me to strategy, because here would have been the better play. Instead of telling people to mail Oreos by the truckload to the, the Democrat headquarters there in Lamar County, what you do is you tell people to buy Oreos, eat the Oreos first, take the empty bag of Oreos, the packaging, and mail that to them. Because that serves two purposes. First of all, then you're sit, sitting there holding an empty bag of Oreos, and that would make any person sad. Because you're looking at Oreos, that, and then second of all, it's a major environmental hazard that, I mean, yes, those packages would have been thrown away anyway, but now the Democrats, the environmentally friendly party, party has to figure out where they're going to dump a bunch of unrecyclable plastic. <laughs> and so that's how you troll the Democrats. You don't do it by sending them free cookies. That's just not a smart play. I mean, you do that with the whenever you're, you know, trying to punish any five-year-old, which the Democrats essentially are, and we'll actually get to that in a second. Uh, but when you're punishing any child, the last thing you do is reward them with cookies. However, I say all of that, I stand by every single word of it. But Gary O'Connor did offer his resignation in result of all that, so maybe, maybe Colonel Allen was a lot smarter than I thought. You know, maybe a, a West Point graduate knows a little bit more about strategy than a local talk show host in Montgomery, Alabama. I don't know, but I'm just saying, I thought it was a dumb plan. Apparently it worked. I, I don't really know if that was the goal Colonel West was going to, but, you know, the guy resigned, so what do I know? All right, for our second Daily Dose of Stupid today, so our, our Daily Dose of Stupid is going to be about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Now, the last one you saw, Colonel Allen West, you probably weren't expecting me to do a Daily Dose of Stupid on him, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she has been the dumbest person of the year. In other words, the person featured in the most daily doses of stupid two years in a row. And so this should surprise nobody. Every word out of her mouth is stupid. She, 
she projects stupid like a, a fountain that has no bottom and no end. Um, you know, she, she has about as much stupid as I have uncoolness. I don't know. I, I, I tried to stick the landing on that one and it didn't work. But anyway, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is back in the news and this time for saying a thing that makes no sense. So I, I guess apparently it is a day that ends in Y, ergo, AOC says something stupid. Let's watch. First and foremost, I don't want to hear a single person on this committee or outside of this committee talk <laughs> about what about uh, valuing life when they continue to uphold the death penalty, when they continue to support policies that disproportionately incarcerate and lead to the deaths of black men and people throughout this country and uphold in a an absolutely unjust medical system that exists for profit that allows people to die because they can't afford to live. In addition to that, if we want to talk about Planned Parenthood, let's talk about how many lives Planned Parenthood has Dude. saved and how many babies have been born because of the prenatal care <laughs> provided by Planned Parenthood. And if you don't, if you don't believe it, and if you've never met a Planned Parenthood baby, oh, tell us I'm happy to let you know that I am one and that my mother received and relied on prenatal care from Planned Parenthood when she was pregnant with me. Oh, man, that's why she's my favorite congressperson right there. AOZ, I am a Planned Parenthood baby. Um, no, you're alive. You, you can't be a Planned Parenthood baby because you're, you're still living. You know, you're still drawing breath. You weren't violently pulled from your mother's womb and have a pair of scissors jabbed in the back of your head, which is what Planned Parenthood does. Uh, you're, you're still alive, ergo you are not a Planned Parenthood baby. That's that's not how that works. <laughs> Gosh, she just says the dumbest things. Uh, now, maybe she's just not smart enough to realize she's alive. Maybe she doesn't understand what the definition of being alive is, and, and clearly, considering her stance on abortion, she probably doesn't. So, because of that, maybe that's the reason she doesn't understand that her being alive means that she's not a Planned Parenthood baby, because maybe she doesn't know what alive is. You know, she doesn't understand what a garbage disposal is, so... Maybe she also doesn't understand what alive is. She also, you know, can't get basic economics or history despite having a degree in it. Uh, so, you know, th there's tons of reasons why this is the case. And also, I, I find it really funny that she's bragging about the prenatal care that her mom gave. Because what she's trying to do is she's trying to explain that she's a, a Planned Parenthood baby, like she's a, a Gerber baby or something, like a, a baby that partook of a certain product and thus she is the whatever product is baby. Um, yeah, considering with you, there's got to be some significant brain damage, like maybe some oxygen not getting to the brain, maybe not some blood flow going on. I, I don't know that you're really a great case for the Planned Parenthood brand, darling. I mean, I, I, I just don't get that. Like if you were trying to showcase, hey, I went to Planned Parenthood and I turned out like fine and stuff. And I, I just want to emphasize to everybody, everybody in this committee and outside this committee. Wouldn't that just be all the people? I mean, if, if you're going to have somebody that's going to be a poster child for something, you shouldn't pick the dumbest person you can find <laughs> and be like, I, I, my mom went to Planned Parenthood when she was pregnant with me and, and I turned out fine. 
Gosh. Uh, the lack of self-awareness is just great. Um, I, I, you don't actually get to see this in this clip because I, I cut it off a little early and I probably shouldn't have, but man, she is just fantastic at the stage tissy fit. She is she is so good at that. And I mean, I, I guess it's because every single time she opens her mouth, it's a, a stage tissy fit. Because there are people, Democrats and Republicans, that are legitimately passionate about things and that comes across. Now, sometimes they may be playing it up a little bit. I mean, even as a talk show host, sometimes I'm, I'm not feeling a certain way or something's going on in my life and I have to fake it a little bit. Um, but with her, it's always fake. And I'm not saying that she isn't genuinely passionate about some of the things she talks about. But in this particular clip, I just love the fact that she's talking very stoically and, and very, you know, to the camera and everything. And then all of a sudden, when it comes her time to talk, she all of a sudden just snaps right into hissy fit mode. Like there's no buildup. She doesn't get more passionate as she's speaking. You can tell she doesn't actually get worked up. It's just like she goes, thank you, Madam Chairwoman. And then automatically there's just this switch. And especially as somebody that's a performer like myself, you can tell when somebody does that, when, when it's not real, you can sense it a mile away. She just goes into like, ah! like she, she does, she does that fake hissy fit thing that she does. And it's just hilarious. Go, go back and watch the whole clip and you'll see her do it. Um, she just switches out of like her, her normal speaking mode into hissy fit mode. And it's just hysterical. And I love that line. All the people on this committee and not on this committee. So all the people, that's what you're saying, right? Anyway. Uh, and then she goes into this whole thing. It's a tired old argument. People in the abortion side of, of the debate have been using this forever. Basically, you're not allowed to be pro-life unless you're for all of the other things that I am for, whether it's connected to abortion or not. So unless you're... Uh, unless you're like uh, for prison reform and stuff, like you can't talk to me about Planned Parenthood. I don't know what in the world that has to do with abortion, but okay. Uh, if you were on the right, imagine trying to pull this trick with them. Look, you're not allowed to talk to me about anything regarding the environment or global warming or climate change or whatever you want to call it this week, unless you agree with me on how long hunting season should be, and the farm bill, and urban pollution. All of those things, by the way, kind of connected to the environment in some ways. But I do find it funny that Democrats, primarily whose voter base resides in urban cities, um, urban locales, suburbs, that kind of thing, virtually their entire base resides in the places that pollute the most. I find that hysterical <laughs> on a number of, for a number of reasons. Uh, but you're looking out at, for example, farmland, rural country, they pollute way less per square mile than places like L.A., New York, Chicago. I mean, the pollution levels there are just insane. And yet they're terrified that Republicans living out in Alabama are somehow harming the environment where we have, you know, 70 percent of our state is just trees. But yeah, we're, we're the ones that are bad for the environment. But that wouldn't work if we reversed it, right? I, I couldn't say to AOC she'd never accept that premise. She is at least smart enough to not accept that. If I were to say to her, you're not allowed to talk to me about the Green New Deal or anything regarding global warming unless you agree with me on how long hunting season should be and that we should just get rid of cities and not have cities anymore because they're causing too much pollution. Like, you couldn't get away with that on the other side. Saying, unless you agree with me on things like gun control, you're not allowed to talk to me about anything kind of tangentially related to guns or, or even things that have nothing to do with guns, like the prison reform and the, abo and the abortion thing. Like, 
I don't see how that's connected at all. But nonetheless, this is what she she tries to project on this. And what it all boils down to is she doesn't want to talk about the issue. And we'll get into that in a second. But I love one of the quotes in there. She's like, let's talk about how many lives Planned Parenthood has saved. Planned Parenthood is a medical organization that does not offer any life-saving treatments. None. Now, they do some preventative care, to their credit. They, they do a little bit of preventative care. And maybe some preventative care has saved lives, but there's absolutely no way to gauge that. And the truth is, that's not even the majority of what they do anyway. But when she says, let's just talk about all the lives that Planned Parenthood has saved, y'all, which is hilarious, she's uh, cultural appropriating my culture, Southern culture, by using the word y'all. But anyway, um, if Planned Parenthood provides no life-saving services and you want to talk about all the lives Planned Parenthood has saved, okay, let's talk about that. Give me a number. Give me a number. How many lives does Planned Parenthood save? They can't quantify it because Planned Parenthood doesn't offer any services that would save lives. They don't do anything like mammograms and pap smears and, and other things that people have tried to attribute to Planned Parenthood. They don't do any of those things. They don't do cancer screenings or anything like that. Oh, okay, AFC, you want to talk about that? Give me a number. How many, how many people does Planned Parenthood saved? See, they don't want to give you a number because they don't know what it is. And with AOC, she doesn't even understand the concept of numbers. So she thinks you can just print as much money as you want, never run out. And that's not how math works. But prenatal care, that's fine. I don't know of a single conservative that is upset with Planned Parenthood for promoting prenatal care. And, and those services I don't have an issue with. In fact, if they just did prenatal care, I would be fine with them operating. I, I wouldn't have any animosity towards them whatsoever. And I don't like them getting federal funding, but that's because I don't like anything getting federal funding that is, you know, not directly related to the duties of government laid out in the Constitution. So I would be against it on libertarian grounds, but I would not object to them getting tax dollars other than the fact that I object to any outside medical organization receiving tax dollars for any reason. But if that weren't the issue, I wouldn't even have a problem with them getting tax money if all they did was prenatal care. That's not the issue. They act as though there's not a single other healthcare provider for women's health that does any prenatal care whatsoever, that we couldn't do this some other way. In fact, there was a bill proposed by Republicans back when they were controlling the House. They proposed a bill that said, we'll stop funding Planned Parenthood. But what we are going to do is we're going to use exactly the same amount of money. We're just going to transfer it to providers of things like prenatal care that don't also do abortions. And the Democrats, they didn't like that, not even a little bit. And so don't sit there and pretend like it's about the prenatal care. We could do things like prenatal care. We could do the other services that are completely harmless, offering contraceptives, that kind of thing. I'm not against any of those things that Planned Parenthood does. That's the only thing they should be getting federal money. But even if that were the case, I'd have no animosity towards them. There are clinics that do not do abortions that do those things that I'd be perfectly fine with and am perfectly fine with. They act as though that's the only place on planet Earth that you could go to get prenatal vitamins or contraceptives. It's the only place you can go to get it, and that's why we have to have them. No, you're supporting them because you like the abortion. That's, that's the problem with all of this. If they didn't do the abortion... That'd be fine. Planned Parenthood had the option a couple of years ago when the Trump administration and Congress put more regulations on who wound up getting federal aid 
and they decided to take a cut in the amount of federal dollars they got rather than agree to the new restrictions that would require them to not do abortions at the clinics that received funding. They want to do the abortions. That's the problem. That's the issue that we have with them. We don't have any issues with the other stuff that they're doing, and we'd be perfectly fine with people getting those services. Just get them at somewhere that does not provide abortions as well. And one of the bigger issues is they act as though, and they want you, they want you to laser focus on all of the services other than abortion that Planned Parenthood provides. But the problem is they're an abortion provider, and that's the primary thing that they do. And if you don't believe me, look at this report put together by Susan B. Anthony, but they're using Planned Parenthood's own reports to put this together. In 2018 through 2019, abortions made up 95% of Planned Parenthood's pregnancy resolution services. So in other words, of the services that they offer for pregnant women, which last time I checked would be prenatal care, 95% of those people end in abortions. Only 5% or something else. They continue on. While prenatal services, miscarriage care, and adoption referrals accounted for only 2.7%, 0.6% in the case of miscarriage care, and 1.2% respectively. Okay, so when we go to prenatal services, miscarriages, and adoption referrals, even if you add all of those together, it doesn't even make up the other 5% other than the 95 that Planned Parenthood spends doing abortions. Now, those may be clinical, those may be clinical abortions where a doctor actually goes in and performs an abortion. It may be a chemical abortion where they give you some kind of drug, but either way, 95% of their services, 95% of the pregnant women that come through their doors leave Planned Parenthood with an abortion. That's a fact, and that's according to their own numbers. It continues on. For every adoption referral in 2018 and 2019, Planned Parenthood performed nearly 81 abortions. Over the past 10 reported years, the ratio was approximately 137 abortions for every adoption referral. Think about that, guys. For every adoption that Planned Parenthood helps facilitate, and again, there are plenty of other organizations that help refer people for adoptions. I support financially a lot of them. Uh, one here in Alabama, Agape, which, which helps adoptions and helps women that need help finding somebody to give their baby to, they actually help people with that. There are plenty of organizations out there, both Christian and secular, that do that without offering abortions. When it comes to Planned Parenthood, for every one baby that they help find a home for an adoption, they kill 81 of them. And this is one of the things that's so incredibly infuriating with people like AOC that are trying to detract attention away from the abortions that Planned Parenthood does. They don't want to talk about that. They don't want to mention that. They keep wanting to talk about the prenatal care, which, as we just saw, accounts for about 2% of what they actually do, as opposed to the 95% when it comes to abortions. And they want to talk about those things because they know that those play well with, with both sides of the aisle. And they just kind of pretend like Planned Parenthood's the only place anybody can go to get those. But then for every one adoption referral, they kill 81 babies. Let's see if we could apply this to Nazism. We would not say that for every 81 Jews that the Nazis killed, they did let one go, ergo, 
the Nazis are really good guys. Let, let's just focus on the, the Jews that the Nazis let go, and, and maybe they even gave him a sandwich on the way out. You know, those Nazis, they're, they're really not that bad. I mean, they only kill 81 Jews for every one that they let go, so they're letting some of them go. No, we would not accept that with any other argument. If you're killing children, even if that figure were reversed, if they were doing 81 adoptions for every one abortion, they would still be an evil organization. The fact that they're doing one is one too many. But even if you ignore that, we wouldn't... It's so ridiculous to look at these people that are doing 81 abortions to every one adoption and be like, well, they're doing adoptions. They must not be all that bad, right, guys? No, this is an evil organization that is murdering children in their mother's womb. And you can try to sugarcoat that. You can try to get them to focus on other things as much as you want to. But at the end of the day, you cannot change that simple fact. And the thing is, the reason that AOC is bringing this up is because she knows that if you actually look at the facts of what Planned Parenthood does, even a lot of Democrats wouldn't agree with it. I mean, would you take your kid to a daycare that 95% of the kids that they keep, they, they kill five of them or, you know, they're fine, but they do kill 95% of the kids. Would you take your kid there? I think the answer would be no. I, I hope the answer would be no. But AOC brings up these stupid arguments that try to deflect and try to keep people from actually talking about it. Because you'll notice what she did first there. The first thing she did was she said, well, you're not even allowed to talk about it unless you agree with me on all these other policy issues. And then the second thing she did was try to talk about literally everything that Planned Parenthood does other than abortion. The reason that Democrats do that is because they know when they actually get into an honest discussion about the issue, they lose every single time without exception. They know that they look like monsters and they know that they're losing the argument and that's why they don't want to have the discussion in the first place. They know if people actually knew the statistics, actually knew the truth, actually saw an abortion, that people would not side with them. And that's why they use these dumb little debate tactics because they know if they're going to win the argument, the only way they can do it is if they don't actually talk about the issue. Let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for The Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Chaplain's Report today, we're going to take a quick break from our first Samuel series because, frankly, the, one of the reasons that this week has been so hectic is because I have been in literally eight to five classes all day today. I, you guys know I'm in grad school. And uh, I'm a Bible major. And so we talked a lot of Bible things. And, and we found it was kind of stumbled on a topic today that I thought was just fantastic. By the way, found out my professor is actually a fan of the show. So if you're watching Dr. Parker, hey, glad that you're with us. But that was kind of cool to find out your professor watches your show. Um, to understand how we came across this topic, 
there was a female student that was talking about how she has gone out and, and spoken to different ladies groups. And one thing that she finds very difficult to deal with, and I mean, when I tell you what it is, you'll say, well, yeah, I, I understand why that's hard, is there are moms that have kids that are not saved. And unless they change their ways between now and then, or, or maybe they even passed away already, they won't be there in heaven with them. And, and the mom is asking the question, how can I enjoy heaven knowing that my kid is not there? And yeah, that's a difficult question to answer. And I don't have a good answer, especially not being a dad myself and not even knowing what the parent-child relationship is like. And there were a lot of really great parents in that class that had some very insightful answers that I appreciated. But I'm not even going to attempt to talk about that one. But you have to understand that that's kind of the way we arrived at this particular verse. And I think that understanding that backstory will help you understand the point that I'm about to make. And this is Paul speaking to the Roman congregation, where he says in Romans 9, verses 1 through 4, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and an unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my countrymen, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and daughters, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. What Paul is discussing there is, it's pretty spelled, I don't think I have to spell it out for you, it's pretty clear what he's saying. The Jewish people, who I have a great deal of love and affection for, my entire family is a part of that nation. Um, this is a guy who was a Pharisee, who was trained in classical Judaism. I mean, he was, according to his own word, a Jew among Jews. And it tore him up inside that the vast majority of the Jews rejected Jesus. That they were the ones that were actually responsible for his crucifixion. That so many of them have known the Torah and known the old law their entire lives. They've been looking for the Messiah and they were standing there and saw him in the flesh and couldn't figure out that it was him. That just broke Paul's heart. And part of the reason that it did is because he knew what was awaiting them because they refused to accept Christ. He understood what was going on with that. And it really does break your heart, too, to read this. That he has an unceasing grief, something that he can't get over. To the point to where he would be willing to give his own salvation in exchange for Israel to allow them to, to know the truth. Now, that's not how salvation works. But I think, and this is the reason that my professor and, and some of the other students brought this verse up, I think that this is the closest thing that we can get to to the kind of pain that they're describing. When you talk about knowing that your kid, your child, or any other family member, because remember, 
Paul calls them his kinsmen here. He thinks of the Jewish nation as his family, and, and they are related by blood in some way. I mean, they, they all have a common ancestor in Abraham. And I think this is really the closest example that we can see of somebody having a dilemma like that, where Paul is so distraught, knowing that there are going to be so many Israelites that miss out on Christ, that he would be willing to give up his own salvation in exchange for theirs. But isn't that exactly what Jesus did for us? Think about the verbiage that Paul uses there. He says, I would rather that I be accursed and separated for Christ for my sake so that they could come to know Christ. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did for us? Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. Christ bore the curse of sin so that we could have salvation. Did Christ gain anything out of that? I mean, he was already in heaven. He was already living with God. So why come to earth and be cursed himself in exchange for our salvation? See, Paul can't do that because Paul's a person. He's a human. He's not God. He can't make that decision. He can't give of himself to save anyone because he's flawed. His human blood is incapable of saving anybody else. Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, had that ability. And because of that, he voluntarily allowed himself to bear a curse so that we could have the curse lifted from us. He bore the shame and the guilt and the curse of sin so that we could have ours removed by his blood. And so... I don't even know if Paul realized what he was doing when he wrote this. But this is a great example of what it means to show the love of Christ to another person. That he is so distraught by seeing his Israel, Israelite brothers and sisters perishing that he would be willing to bear a curse for them. And if you think about familial bonds the reason that God gave them to us in the first place is so that we could better understand our relationship with him, right? Part of the reason that he makes us dads and moms is so we can understand what God sees us like. You know, the, the patience that it takes, the concern for your kids, that's all magnified a hundredfold when it's God's relationship to us. And so we have that relationship so we can understand our relationship to him a little bit better. But you can't love your kids more than God does. It is impossible. You as a human being who is finite cannot possibly love your kid more than God does. You conceived them and you raised them. God made them. He knit them together in the womb. And he's been closer with them and more intimate than them than you can just because you're not all-knowing all and omnipresent. You can't know them the way that he does. And so he loves them even more than you. And he wants them to repent. He wants them to be saved even more than you do. Guarantee you, and Paul would attest to this if asked, that 
when God is, is seeing Paul write this, he loves the Israelites more than Paul does. How do I know that? Because he did bear that curse. He did go to the cross and be crucified of his own free will in order to give us that salvation, in order to save Israel and everybody else. And if we're commanded to follow Christ's example, if we're commanded to love people the way that Jesus did, Paul just gave us a master class in that. If we want to love people the way that Jesus wants us to, if we want to extend that love of Christ to other people, this is the attitude we've got to have. To the point to where we would be willing to bear the curse of sin. Now, we already have our own curse of sin, and that's the reason we're incapable of doing this. But that we would be willing to bear the curse of somebody else's sin if it meant they could be saved. And frankly, that scares me. Because I don't think I'm there yet. And I'm not sure that I ever will be. That I would be willing to give up my salvation for somebody else. But I bet there's an awful lot of parents that, if they're not there, they're bordering on it. That they understand this love of Christ. And that's a kind of love that you can only have by walking with Christ. There's a lot of terrible people that love their kids. There are. There's a lot of terrible people that love their family. That don't know God, that are really kind of morally horrible in their own personal lives, but they still love their kids. But after you've spent some time walking with Christ, after you understand what the love of Christ means, what it means to sacrifice yourself for somebody else, then you can reach the kind of love to where you would give up your own soul to see them saved. And if God was willing to give up everything that he had and empty himself and walk this world in the form of a man and be brutally tortured to death for crimes he didn't commit, and that's what he calls us to, that is a tall order. And one that I don't think you can reach without years of experience and a lot of prayer. And that's something I'm going to be praying for, and I would encourage all of you to do the same, because... That's going to be something that I can't get to easily. Stay the course, friends. Thank you for listening to the Tactics Podcast. Tactics is a production of Not Ashamed Media. Any opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of our business partners or sponsors. Graphics by Jessica Dawson. Video production by Jackson Dean. Broadcast studio provided by Faulkner University. Location studio provided by Delrada Church of Christ. Copyright 2021.